Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Cheryl Wu Dunn, Caroline Kristoff, Nick Kristoff at the Kristoff Family Farm in Yamhill. It's April 1st, 2021. Thank you all for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Delighted. Well, this is an interview ostensibly about wine, but we have a lot of other things to talk about. So instead of starting with wine, I want to talk about the site and, and why, why we're here and why you're here. So let's talk about uh, this place and kind of the family history of this place. Um, sure. So, um, well, to go way back, my dad was a World War II refugee and survived a concentration camp, uh, near execution. And then the First Presbyterian Church in Portland, Oregon, sponsored his way to the U.S. And he, partly for that reason, fell in love with Oregon. Um, we bought this farm in 1971. And right now we're in the old sheep shed. Um, which I have a special attachment to because the first time I learned to drive a tractor, I drove through the wall of it. <laughs> so you've been on the farm, you've had this farm for a while growing up. Tell me about uh, what it's been over the years. So for um, about 80 years, this farm grew fruit uh, since it was first uh, begun. Apples, cherries, prunes, uh, also some walnuts. And then over the years, we concentrated on uh, pie cherries. And basically, people weren't eating enough cherry pies. And so a few years ago, we had kind of a crisis. The people who bought our cherries said um, they, they could not buy our cherries anymore. Um, and we could have grown hazelnuts like every other person in Oregon. But Cheryl is allergic to hazelnuts. <laughs> and as it happened, Cheryl and I at that time were writing a book about the collapse of the working class. And one of the things that struck us was the lack of uh, job opportunities. And, you know, cherries don't, add, don't have a lot of added value. Uh, wine does. Uh, cider apples do. And so we thought, well, <laughs> let's throw this all up in the air and plant uh, grapes and cider apples and see if we can, uh, you know, produce a viable crop, but also maybe help the community a little bit, too. Right, we'll come back to that in a second. Now, let's talk about obviously about your careers outside the farm. Uh, obviously, fairly fairly uh, prestigious careers. Uh, Cheryl, let's start with you. Tell me about what you were doing before this, and 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 how you you and Nick met. Well, I actually am from uh, New York City, born and, and raised there. So I was a city girl meeting the farm boy, and uh, we weren't <laughs> sure it was going to happen. Um, also, because um, his um, ideal location was going to be the Middle East. And of course, I'm Chinese American, and I, the last place I was interested in going was the Middle East, especially Bahrain. So I was interested in Asia. I also thought that the economic prospects for Asia were really, you know, on the cusp, and it was going to really rise. Um, in any case, um, of course, um, uh, there is fate. Um, uh, I, uh, you know, we weren't sure what was going to happen with the relationship, and then. Uh, Nick's foreign editor called him up and said, by the way, we have an opening in Hong Kong. <laughs> and so there he went and there I went. And 
um, the rest is history. It was really uh, fortuitous. And, and so, of course, we spent our time as New York, uh, New York Times correspondents in, in Beijing covering all of China and then in Tokyo covering all of Japan and also uh, South Korea and part of Southeast Asia as well. Uh, we, you know, just an incredible run just covering uh, democracy movements, um, you know, uh, um, we had, uh, you know, coups in Philippines and, you know, I went into Burma uh, and, I mean, at a time when no one else was going there. I mean, it was just an, a, you know, a fascinating time. And then we came back here. Uh, we wrote several books, uh, one called Half the Sky about um, uh, the um, challenges facing women and girls around the world and how to turn that oppression into opportunity. It was Half the Sky turning uh, oppression into opportunity for women worldwide. Um, and then we wrote a follow-up to that because people wanted to hear more about the U.S., so we wrote A Path Appears. Uh, and then we decided to focus, f um, um, you know, really uh, exclusively on the working class in the U.S. And so Tightrope was released, Tightrope, Americans Reaching for Hope, was released basically in January 2020, right before the pandemic. And so what was amazing is that the timing was, was great because we were writing about America's working class and also why all Americans should care about the working class. And we just obviously didn't anticipate the pandemic highlighting the greater gaps in inequality and why it's so important for everybody to have health care. You want everybody to be uh, vaccinated, of course, because you know uh, working class people spread the virus just as much as non-working working class people, and and everybody is just as vulnerable. I mean, s since then we've discovered that you know there are more privileges among people who can work at home, mm -hmm. whereas mm -hmm. a lot of the working class they're you know out in the front lines, and so they are the people we rely on. That's why they're called essential workers, and we're not called essential workers. <laughs> um, and so that's really um, you know, brought to the fore some of these issues that were in tightrope, mm -hmm. and we see them so prevalent now. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, you know, um, it's been you know, a, a crazy but very insightful and um, telling year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, plenty more questions about the last year that we'll get back to in a little bit, but I'm curious, you mentioned kind of this, this run of, of events you were covering. Were there some that stand out in your memory, some memorable moments or memorable events that, that stand out in your memory from your time abroad? Yeah, the most memorable was um, the democracy movement in China uh, that led to the crackdown in, you know, at Tiananmen Square in 1989. I mean, that was something that uh, we hadn't anticipated either. Um, I remember back in China when uh, there was a tiny, there was a young student at Beijing University who was, you know, out on the lawn was holding little what he called democracy salons and at first 15 people showed up and then 20 people showed up I thought oh wow this is <laughs> this is cute right <laughs> and he became a leader in the democracy movement then expanded to millions of people of course you know the, unfortunately that led to the crackdown but they were really pushing for uh, you know real concrete things too it's not just oh we want democracy it was really specific like they did want hot water. Mm -hmm. I mean, they had hot water two times a week in Beijing University to take showers. I mean, you know, I, you know, that's really hard. They wanted refrigeration. They, you know, people's like vegetables were, you know, stacked out on the stairwells mm -hmm. um, because it was colder in the stairwells, but there was no refrigeration. Uh, you know, things like that. They just had, wanted concrete things. They wanted more heat. 
during the winter. Um, and of course, then they were saying, well, we want freedom of the press. We want to be able to, you know, speak to our leaders, to voice our opinions, which they were not, you know, you just really couldn't do that in China. And we know, unfortunately, how that ended. Um, but what that meant for China was that the leaders had to focus on making, uh, filling people's stomachs and, and making them, you know, feel full so that they're give, serving their, sort of addressing their material needs, mm-hmm. um, which is what in the U.S. I think we, we um, sometimes forget. You know, there are so many people wanting for material needs. We need to address those material needs. Um, uh, and so it was a real lesson uh, for me, at least. Mm-hmm. So Nick, tell us about your path from from Yamhill to, to to New York Times. What 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 drew you to that? And kind of tell us about the the process of education and, and and making your way into that into that world. Well, my journalism career was born in the eighth grade, beginning of the fall of eighth grade at Yamhill Grade School, and there was an organizational meeting to hold a school newspaper, and I hadn't really thought of journalism. I didn't go to the meeting. A bunch of kids did go. They wanted to have a school paper, but nobody wanted the burden of editing it, so they chose me as editor in abstention. <laughs> and my journalism career was foreign, and, and I loved it. I mean, I really enjoyed it. So uh, in high school, I began working for the News Register as soon as I turned 16 and got my driver's license. I you know, worked for the school paper at YC, uh, worked for the FFA for a year, uh, then went to Harvard, uh, worked at journalism there, worked for the Salem paper and the Oregonian over the summers, um, then uh, studied law at Oxford and was in danger of becoming a law professor. <laughs> but, uh, but fortunately, the New York Times hired me and um, then um, I escaped but I should, I should say that actually his um, journalism career predated eighth grade. It started actually when he was five. And his mother gave him a little kit, a newspaper kit. Oh, nice. And so Nick's first news story was, man falls off bike when his dad <laughs> fell off the bike. I had to scoop. You know, the New York Times Pardon completely me. missed that story. <laughs> What was your original initial job at the New York Times? What did they hire you to do to start with? <laughs> I started off covering international economics based in New York. and Which he knew nothing about, man. <laughs> which I knew my, nothing my about. <laughs> uh, but fortunately, the, you know, initially when I, when I was hired by the News Register, I covered agriculture, which I didn't really know anything about either, but the editors didn't know enough <laughs> to realize that. When I covered international economics, the editors didn't know enough to appreciate that. Um, and then I went to Los Angeles as a national correspondent, and there met Cheryl, who was working for the Wall Street Journal. And uh, then, um, then we went off to Hong Kong, mm-hmm. Beijing, mm-hmm. Uh, back here. I became a columnist after 9-11 in uh, 2001. And similar question to what I asked Cheryl, are there memorable moments or stories for you that stand out from obviously a, a, a long career in journalism? Are there memorable moments for you? Watching Chinese troops massacre, uh, open open fire with automatic weapons on protesting students is something you never forget. Mm-hmm. Covering a genocide in Darfur is something that uh, you never forget. Seeing uh, young girls locked up in brothels in Cambodia, uh, modern slavery, is something that sears you. 
but you know at the same time I was coming back here to the farm Cheryl and I were and, and the kids and we saw something that was equally searing but closer to home and that was that many of my old classmates were dying early uh, and that more than a quarter of the kids on my old number six school bus uh, going to Yam Hill died of uh, what are called deaths of despair, alcohol, drugs, and suicide. And look, I'm, you know, I love Yam Hill. I'm deeply proud of it. We always felt that there was a very strong social fabric here. And that was unraveling. And to see um, the toll on my old friends uh, and trying to understand what went wrong in a community that I, you know, that I, that I loved and, and that was, you know, wanted to be really proud of. That was really hard to try to figure that out. For sure. I know of, of many of many kind of accomplishments. Uh, the two of you have won Pulitzer Prizes and won them together. Tell me about that uh, accomplishment uh, in your memory. What, 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 what did that mean to you at the time and, and what has it meant for you since? Well, I would say that at the time, I mean, the last thing we were thinking about was prizes because what we were reporting on was just so visceral and so, you know, um, like unbelievable what people were going through. I mean, these events were uh, history making, uh, a huge democracy movement, millions of people, uh, you know, you know, several millions of people in Beijing marching uh, through the center of the capital. Um, and then students going on hunger strike and, and you know, uh, civilians, bystanders trying to feed them and, and try to help them. And, and then you hear um, sirens, ambulances coming by to take the kids to the hospital. I mean, the, just the sirens going every once in a while, you knew, oh, God, that meant that another kid was going to, you know, take, be taken to the hospital. So it, it just, um, you know, it was just uh, really, really memorable. So, um, but I would say that, uh, you know, at the time, uh, we were focused on just doing our job and getting it done right. Mm -hmm. A lot of reporters were there. I mean, the, the city was flooded with TV reporters, with, you know, everyone. So we, our last thing we were thinking is, oh, we're going to do better than anyone else. I mean, we were just trying to focus on the story. And every day it was like, how do we do this differently? How do we capture the real uh, life of what's going on and, and the people and the stories? Um, you know, Nick was writing a lot about the news of the day, like, you know, uh, the, the leadership did this or, you know, they, they declared martial law. And, and I was trying to find the faces and the, and, you know, and the personalities of, you know, of the movement and then later on of the crackdown. Um, so I remember one story um, I, I did was, you know, they were saying, oh, it's just those terrible students in the, crack, that, in the uh, middle of the square that they, they got shot at. Well, I actually did a story of, of a boy who was killed like two miles outside of the square because the troops were just, maybe they were just going wild, you don't know, but they obviously killed you know, people outside of that because there are no guns in, there are no guns in Beijing except for people who are you know, troops or soldiers. So we knew that they were gunned down um, elsewhere too. And so it was just a very sad uh, story about you know, someone who, who's, who was killed, a young young student who was killed and you know what happens what that does for the family I mean it was you know obviously there aren't many crimes that aren't many like shooting crimes uh, in in China at that time and so we focused on the story and and obviously we were delighted you know by the news of the Pulitzer but you know that came much later and uh, we hadn't been thinking about it when we were reporting 
So Nick, you mentioned you became a columnist. Uh, Caroline, I'm sorry to ignore you so far. We'll get to you, I promise. <laughs> Thank you for sitting there patiently. I appreciate it. Uh, you mentioned you became a columnist after, after 9-11. Um, tell me about the... Tell me about 9-11, I guess, from the New York perspective. It would be, I'd love to hear that. But also, when you became a columnist, what was your goal? What did you want to set out to accomplish with, with a column in the New York Times? 9-11 was an incredibly profound experience, obviously, for everybody um, then, in, uh, then in New York and, uh, and, and for the whole country. Um, it was because of the trauma of 9-11 that I got my column that the, the New York Times decided they wanted somebody to write about terrorism and travel and uh, so I traveled around to Yemen and uh, you know Iraq uh, uh, all kinds of rebellion in the Philippines and um, my main goal was partly to come back because I knew Cheryl would, if I got killed, Cheryl would kill me. <laughs> <laughs> if he wasn't. <laughs> and, um, there, and, um, there, there'd been sort of an awkward case in when I'd been in a plane crash in, uh, in Congo some years earlier. And, uh, it was clear that if, if I died, Cheryl was going to really, really come after me. <laughs> um, but I mean, one of the things that I realized as a columnist is that I think people exaggerate the degree to which we change minds on subjects that people have thought about. So if I write about the Middle East, if I write about Donald Trump, if I write about abortion, then it's very unlikely that I'm going to change somebody's mind. Where I think we do have a capacity to influence people is to bring issues that are neglected and propel them onto the agenda. And so make people face up to social problems that are hard to confront, made people think about issues. And, uh, you know, I, I think my, the, the topics that I'm proudest of are some of those topics, uh, like genocide in Darfur, uh, like sex trafficking uh, here in the U.S. that helped, <laughs> helped the country kind of understand the stakes of some issues and, uh, and led to them being addressed. You mentioned sex trafficking. I know that was a, a fairly recent one for you this this past year uh, with with Pornhub. I yeah. know it was part of part of that. Tell me about that story specifically, or a story like that. And and the, are you able to measure impact? Are you able to measure how, how do you how do you measure impact of of the work you do? So I had written a lot about sex trafficking uh, since the nineteen nineties and had not. There was a fierce debate about porn in the U.S. and I didn't really have strong feelings one way or the other. But uh, I, I kept hearing about a lot of uh, underage kids whose videos ended up on Pornhub, uh, that Pornhub would refuse to take down the videos. Uh, in some cases, they committed suicide. And I thought, you know, here's a major international corporation and website that is monetizing illegal videos of children being sexually assaulted. Uh, and so I poked around a little bit, and some of the first videos I saw were of uh, unconscious women being raped, and the rapists were touching their eyeballs to show that these women were unresponsive. And, you know, and to see, a, again, a company that is selling advertising against those videos, obviously not consensual, uh, I found troubling and I thought that 
if people were more aware of it, um, they, um, you know, they would not, they would not approve. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, sure enough, so um, I wrote a piece. Um, the credit card companies immediately investigated themselves, confirmed there were illegal videos there, cut off ties to Pornhub. I think Pornhub cared more about the credit card companies than it did about my protests. And so they immediately uh, removed uh, more than 10 million uh, videos, uh, more than two thirds of all their videos where they could not confirm consent. And uh, there are criminal investigations of Pornhub now in both Canada and the US. Uh, there are civil suits underway, a 14 year old girl, there are others. Uh, and so, um, you know, there has there has clearly been some response vis-a-vis -vis Pornhub. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the challenge is, of course, that uh, you can't just go after one company because then business immediately will go to another company, and we'll have to see whether uh, the response is sustained in ways that make it less likely that that uh, teenagers get such videos placed online without their consent in ways that drive them to suicide. We just we'll have to see. Mm -hmm measurable impact though made from a from a column you wrote that's, that's pretty incredible to see that kind of impact um when people become aware of some really hard difficult things to talk about then um yeah. periodically one can uh, you know often i feel like i'm butting my head against the wall i'm tilting at windmills but every now and then you do find impact Tell me about your, your calm ideas. Otherwise, do, do, do they generally come from things that you uh, that you are that you notice, or they come from suggestions from others, from your family, from friends, from readers? Uh, where, where do most your ideas come from? Uh, I think my ideas come, uh, you know, from all over. Things I've read, things I've encountered. Uh, one thing that is kind of useful, frankly, about being here on the farm is that. Uh, this is the opposite of a liberal bubble. <laughs> this is a somewhat Trumpian bubble uh, right here in, in rural Yamhill County. And people see the world very differently than I do. Um, and, if, you know, frankly, that is useful. There's a lot of America that does uh, think this way. And I think it, um, you know, that I, and also, I mean, there are a lot of folks who are really struggling uh, in the pandemic. Uh, I think a lot of people have, um, who had struggled with substance abuse before have returned to it. There's a lot of social isolation, a lot of people struggling with jobs, uh, you know, I think with hunger. And uh, that's useful for a journalist to see. Mm -hmm. So Caroline, to you mm -hmm. now, yes. uh, tell me about your, <laughs> tell me about your kind of upbringing and, and education. I know you're uh, at Harvard. Tell me, tell me about kind of the decision that, that, that led you to that path. Um, so much. So I, uh, I was raised in New York, but kind of bounced between here and New York my whole life. I was actually born in Japan. Um, but sadly, I don't remember any of it because <laughs> we left when I was two. Um, so, <laughs> uh, I definitely wish I could have been there for a little bit longer, but I kind of straddled New York and here growing up. I spent all my summers here and, you know, I never went to camp or anything. So it was like, you know, full full days here. Camp Yam Hill. <laughs> yeah, Camp Yam Hill, exactly. And always had a more emotional attachment to here. Um, my best friends were the two neighbors who lived on Roosevelt Drive, and we would just kind of like frolic in the woods <laughs> during the day, build forts, team up against my brothers. 
Um, and so that was kind of what my what my summers were like. And then back in New York, you know, totally different world. I was at a an amazing um, public school that was basically a private school, but <laughs> it was a was a public school. Um, and um, you know, everyone there is trying to get into Ivy League colleges and different kind of fight there. Mm-hmm. And so um, I also had the privilege just kind of traveling all over the world growing up because of these two. So our all of our vacations were to the next reporting crisis. And so, you know, Christmas was like, all right, where's the next crisis? Let's go there. So one year it was um, at a Cambodian dump, this like 10 mile radius dump where we had to shower for like weeks after that (laughs) um and then you know next thanksgiving was at a cholera hospital and and so on and so forth but my did my dad did actually take me out of school a couple of times growing up um to take me on reporting trips to china or um angola once to iran too and so i was always really grateful for that because i felt like i learned so much in those weeks even though i was like you know, frantically trying to catch up in school after that. Um, but those were just such rich ex- experiences. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, you know, I, I was never kind of like Harvard my whole life, but my brothers were there and it's like, all right, <laughs> like, I guess this is what this happened. I got in. So I was like, okay. Um, and I mean, I loved, I loved Harvard. I just graduated last spring, last May. Um, and, uh, I got to spend my freshman year there with my brother, who was a senior, which was really nice. Um, and, uh, you know, there's just people from all over the world there. And you, it, it was such an amazing experience. Um, and uh, then the pandemic hit. And so, you know, the world kind of went away. And we were all these, like, fresh grads who were like, what now? <laughs> And I I had never really intended on coming back here for this past year. Um, But once the pandemic hit and then suddenly we realized that, oh, we might have an apple harvest this fall. And so I was like, oh. And then I kind of realized that my parents were just kind of managing this on the side in addition to their like 400 other things that they do every day. And I was like, maybe someone should be overseeing this. Um, And so I kind of took, um, took control over that and... Um, have been really investing a lot more for this past year and kind of realizing what this all means for the future um, and getting really excited excited about it. So that's kind of how I how I landed here. We had an international search for the best CEO for Christophe yeah. Farms, <laughs> carefully weighed the thousands of applicants and yeah. chose Carol. I won. Your nose the whole time. Beat my brothers. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned uh, sort of taking control a bit more the last year. What, tell me about what that's entailed. What, what does it mean to be the, the CEO of Christophe Farms? Um, what does it mean? So I, I guess I didn't really know going in. I was like, all right, I guess somebody has to kind of be understand all the different things that are moving right now like our media presence our website which didn't really exist (laughs) before who what we're doing (laughs) like are we ever gonna learn how to make cider or wine um you know kind of like what our trajectory is and kind of really thinking that through um our finances I mean my mom is obviously a businesswoman and she was handling it but not um didn't really have enough time to really devote and and organize it sufficiently um which are you know 
prosperous business. <laughs> Christoph Farms is <laughs> really needs right now before we before we even have done anything. Um, but Caroline but, has spreadsheets after spreadsheets on them. So. Yeah, yeah, just kind of like centralizing a lot of the information that we had, and we've been visiting with a lot of other vineyards and and cideries and wineries and et cetera, and just kind of like consolidating all of the information that we learned to try to can understand how to use that information to um, bolster our own trajectory I think has been important but but really just kind of thinking through like what we're doing like everything was just kind of happening really quickly because you know my parents are so productive like they're just like you're doing it and I was like what's our what's what are our values <laughs> where do we see this going um and so I like to see myself as the, the visionary <laughs> so you mentioned earlier that kind of the, the background on the why you went with cider apples and, and grapes tell me about when you, once you decided that's what you wanted to do how did you make the next decision of, of what grapes what apples how many where like all the kind of processes of actually planting a vineyard and a, and a cidery so um you know i suspect that a lot of the people that you talk to for the archive really know uh, wine deeply and Pinot Noir and can, you know, say, ah, yes, clearly, uh, you know, 2016 from elevation 700 feet, etc. That is not us. Um, and we know our limitations. Uh, so for the grapes, we hired RP to, um, to put in the vineyard and uh, to advise us about uh, about what rootstock to use, what clones to use, etc. Uh, we also did consult with some other uh, folks around. Adam Campbell of Elk Cove uh, is only about two miles away as the crow flies. He's also a YC graduate. I've admired what he's done with Elk Cove. Um, back in the day when they were starting out, we all thought, oh, those crazy Campbells growing <laughs> grapes. Can you believe it? And and so it's you know it's it's been um, really inspiring to see what what they have done with Alcove, and so uh, he was very helpful in uh, advising us. Um, uh, the Sockle Blossers uh, as well, um, and but RP really did the uh, the heavy lifting for that. And uh, for the apples, we initially. Uh, there was a, an apple consultant, uh, Nick Gunn, who advised us about varieties and, um, uh, you know, but I do want to say that <laughs> it was not an entirely smooth process when we put our impregnable deer fence around the, uh, around the farm to keep those deers out, uh, away from, you know, munching on our grapes and apples. We managed to fence some deer inside and lock them in with the grapes and uh, and and apples. So, um, you know, when things could go wrong, they mostly did. But I have to say, Caroline really took over. I mean, she you know managed the first harvest of the apples. Uh, you know, pressed them herself, uh, and you know yeah. she's you know, done experimentation. You know, you know fermenting her own apple. You know, cider. Uh, you know, she's you know. She's doing all the logo, the marketing, and you know the logo selection. You know, finding the IP lawyer. I mean, yeah, everything. She's really soup to nuts. So, um, and we did a tasting uh, the other day, and it was fabulous. We were like, wow! And even the person who was helping us with that was like, wow! <laughs> Didn't expect it to be that good. It was really a nice blend, and so we're really excited. Um, we're really excited by this. So I think she's she's now you know got her 
sights set on what to do with the launch and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It's really exciting. That's a nice way to start. Uh, tell me about the, the the process for you in terms of learning that kind of thing. How have you how have you dove in? Yeah, so it was de definitely a process. I mean, when we started out, we were all like, okay, so this is red wine, <laughs> this is white wine. <laughs> and um, very quickly, we were like, oh my goodness, we really need to expand our vocabulary and our understanding of this. Like, Rosé. Yeah, my dad was like, oh, this takes, this this would taste complicated. And we were like, okay, we need a new word. <laughs> um, and so... We started doing a lot more tastings, um, and I would do a lot more research on other cideries and just kind of, like, try to um, meet all the people in the area, which, of course, was so hard during the pandemic. Um, and so I was like, oh, this is, this is not the time to be trying to learn about a completely new industry. And so um, also, like, got a few, a few books and things, but that always, I feel like, needs to supplement mm -hmm. kind of active learning and meeting people and, and seeing um, cider, but trying to do two things. A, kind of learn about the trees and the orchard and that aspect of it, and then B, the um, cider making part mm -hmm. and fermentation and chemistry. I was like, oh my god, I don't remember anything about chemistry, but just asked a lot of questions whenever we visited um, places and, and cold emailed a lot of people to go and visit. Um, the Northwest Cider Association was so helpful and was like, oh, there are the, all these great female cider makers that will be so helpful. And so, you know, I was suddenly in touch with all these really cool female cider makers that I didn't even know existed. Um, and then there was this other female and diversity wine symposium. Um, these these two amazing women who wanted to interview my mom and I, we were like, great. And they, Kelly and Regina, they were both so helpful and so excited about us. And, you know, Kelly started, like, putting me in touch with all these people. And so people have been so, so, so helpful, um, really, and just only want to help. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of nervous about being this, like, really young female who doesn't know anything, <laughs> who doesn't know what she's doing. But everyone's been really, really helpful. Mm -hmm. And so it's been a lot of fun learning. And our... Uh, my brother got this massive um, uh, sensory kit that we test our sense of smell with, and so he has like uh, 70 different smells, and every night for a while we were like, lavender? And <laughs> 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 trying, and so, um, you know, it was, it was a fun activity, but also we were like, oh wow, like, we didn't have a sense of smell before this. And we were like, we hope we don't lose it in COVID. <laughs> like, we can't get COVID because of this. Um, but yeah, so, you know, kind of all, all kinds of things. And I was also thinking of taking classes at um, Chemectica College and at some point. So hopefully I can still do that soon. I mean, they have such amazing programs for, um, for vineyard and, and center making and just the science behind all of it and the actual practice of it. Um, and also hopefully when things are opening up, there's a few cider classes that I would love to take and, um, and yeah, yeah. So it's kind of all over the place, the learning process. <laughs> so how, how has this changed your, your kind of vision for yourself? Is this something you now want to do for a while? So yeah, this is definitely, this is an interesting question. There have been kind of moments where I'm like, should I just commit? <laughs> and like, is this, is this my life? But I'm like. I'm so young, like, I don't know, there's so many other things, like, I, I studied history and literature, you know, so different, and that was, 
um, it's just liberal arts and like opening me up to the world and so I was like ah if I take all these classes right now and really dive in then it's going to be so hard to get out because I'm just gonna want to stay here like I see in the future I'm like oh we can this can be a big wedding venue and we can have a lavender farm too and like roses and horseback riding and you know all kinds of crazy things and which I still hope to have someday and I still hope to be I think it would be so cool to um eventually bring production on site and have a tasting you know transform this into a tasting room and um, have, bring, be able to bring people here and have a farm to glass kind of thing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, concerts and I could be the head cider maker, wine maker but I also do think that I need to at some point kind of like come back to it mm-hmm. and I've always dreamed of living abroad for a few years like five years after college and there are still so many things that I do want to do and so I kind of see this as a you know coming coming back to like always being there and like always kind of being involved with it but really committing to it a little bit down the road so tell me about the, the first harvest for, for cider. Uh, you mentioned that you, you guys were happy with how the results turned out. What was the process like? What, was it something new to you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, at first we had no idea when to even tell when the, when the apples were ready. We like started tasting them and we were like, oh, these are bad. <laughs> these are not table apples. Because that's what we were used to, just like sweet table apples. And cider apples are just completely different. And, uh, you know, they're super tannic and bitter and you're not supposed to eat them they're cider apples for a reason and so we were asking people and they were like oh like October sometime (laughs) and like or like you know like after they start dropping but it's not exactly when they start dropping they have to be you know like the water levels have to be really low the bricks levels have to be this and this and then they were like some people were like, oh, you have to get these devices to measure the water levels and sugar levels in them. And then other people were like, no, 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 that's such a waste. Don't do that. And then other people were like, oh, when they're really young, it's like a month earlier. And so for a while, we were just kind of like, like, is this ready? Like, maybe, maybe not. Um, and uh, uh, so that was all kind of just like a... And then everyone was like, you know, yeah, it'll be fine. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> so we picked throughout a month um and we definitely thought that the window was going to be smaller but yeah it took about a month because different varieties were ready at different times um but in the end Nat Reverend Nat who is the one that's making our cider he um left them to what's called sweat for about a month or two and they're just in this giant refrigerator essentially and all of the water is continuing to evaporate from them so when we actually pressed them, they were a lot sweeter mm-hmm. at first, mm-hmm. and it was it was really cool to see how that taste changes. But um, no, it was it was a lot of fun. I had a couple of friends come and help stay with me for a few weeks and help with the harvest and pick. I mean, we didn't have that many apples. We didn't need that much help, but uh, it was just like super fun to taste all of the different varieties. We have about twelve. Mm-hmm. Um, and bring them we kept like a little stash on the side and adam and i um pressed them ourselves we had like this little we made this into a little pressing area (laughs) and pressed them and then i had a bunch of i have a bunch of experiments now actually in the basement where i'm fermenting like 
10 different batches all like a little bit different with different yeasts and and so on um but yeah it's it was definitely a lot of fun and super exciting and I didn't really think that we would come out with any like cider or anything like you know real until we actually went yesterday or two days ago and and tasted it and I was like wow um, we did this so yeah that, that was super cool and then the other thing the big thing that I learned is that you know as someone who has cider apples you don't actually do any of the work it's the cider apples you just have to facilitate the right environment and process for, I mean same with wine um too but they do all the work for you <laughs> so cool you mentioned wine grapes obviously a little bit longer uh, maturation process yeah. tell me about what you're kind of expecting to do with the wine grapes once they are mature yeah so we still have a few years for that and we have about 95 percent pinot noir five percent chardonnay and that uh, I definitely prioritized learning about cider first because I was like, oh my god, apple harvest now, 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 <laughs> wine later. Uh, but we've been continuing to, I mean, we've been continuing to meet with uh, winemakers and other people who manage vineyards and um, learn about wine and especially Pinot Noir in this area and like read some books about it. In terms of what we're planning to do, as of now, we're planning to have um, someone else make the wine because... Again, we don't know how to make wine, uh, but under our label and then kind of figure out how to straddle and label both the cider and the wine under our Kristoff um, Farms label, but without um, diminishing the wine and without trying to bolster the cider too much because cider and wine, they're not on a, a level playing field mm -hmm. from this area. And so we're trying to figure out how to um, kind of, you know, figure out both. And, but a lot now has also just been trying to increase attraction to our, our website and our story and just get people involved. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most people aren't public facing at this point before they've made any wine or cider and you usually have to buy that. And so we're so lucky that we actually have people who are already willing to hear our story. And so now we just have to try and make that story worth listening to. <laughs> 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 the, the second half of the battle, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you you you've, you've got the farm started. You've got the the cider apples. You've got the wine grapes. Obviously, all of you have other things going on. So, what's the kind of plan for the the future of the farm? How is it going to work? What are your roles going to be going forward? Well, I think that it will. It, this will happen organically. I mean, we'll see how it goes. I mean, if we find that there's huge, overwhelming demand, then we'll step up and and do what it takes to do that. Um, we're hoping that will be the case and it won't be, oh, Christoph <laughs> Farms. Um, but no, we, we, we are very excited because we, I mean, just by how well the, the apples turned out. I mean, we were all just pleasantly surprised. I mean, actually, you know, it really was a surprise. It wasn't, you know, you know, the, the guy beforehand was thinking, oh, what am I going to tell them? Maybe I should taste it beforehand because if it isn't good, I have to come up with a story. But he said I didn't have time. And I'm like, I didn't need to. This was so good. It was like, you know, so we had a lot of luck. I mean, we know that it takes a lot of luck. And so we hope that that will be the same with the grapes. But we've got really good soil here. It's just great land um, and an excellent, you know, team running you know, running the vineyard and also the orchard now. And so, you know, we think we're trying to put our best foot forward, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, someone else was, was walking through who also is a 
expert winemaker was walking through, you're going to have great wine because this, this, you know, the, the land is just really good. So, I mean, it's not just the land being good, but <laughs> we have to do all the right things and not mess it up. But, but uh... it's a nice first step to have the land. <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah. Absolutely. So um, we we talked a little bit about about COVID already and about kind of uh, the way it's affected you, Caroline, especially. I, I'm curious uh, for the rest of you. Uh, the, tell me about the the pandemic's effect on on your lives, on your lives here, on your on your lives elsewhere. And what you kind of the effect you've seen? You, you mentioned a little bit about the effect you've seen on the on the working class. What 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 do you see coming out of the of the pandemic for 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 Yamhill, and for sort of I guess America in general. So, for us, you know, it has meant that uh, I'm not traveling all the time, which I uh, traditionally have done, and we it's been fantastic to be here on the farm. Um, for. America's working class, the pandemic in many ways I think has been catastrophic. You had uh, 10 million people who lost their jobs and because we have a crazy system in which access to medical care often depends upon your job, many lost health coverage just when they needed it most. You had social isolation uh, compounded and for those millions of Americans who struggle with dependency issues. Uh, we had a substantial increase in that. There seems to have been an increase in suicidal uh, ideation. Um, and so there are many Americans, you know, who investors who had stock in Amazon who came out of this far better than before. And there were plenty of uh, people who uh, did not survive or who have really been uh, struggling. There is some reason to hope that COVID made bare a lot of long-standing inequities and problems in the United States that will lead the country to begin to address them in a more systematic way, such as lack of universal health care, lack of universal paid sick leave. Um, and so, you know, I hope that we will begin to address some of these and invest in um, you know, invest in, 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 in addressing some of these inequities. I do think, frankly, that the wine industry uh, can help in that regard to some degree. I think that in Yamhill County, it has been a, uh, you know, a force for good in trying to um, address these, but, you know, with a couple of asterisks there, too. Any other thoughts? Uh, Caroline, I know you, you had some work with the uh, COVID task force. Uh, tell me about tell me about oh, that. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, that was just kind of my um, plummet into reality from school. <laughs> and I got to see the behind the scenes of what day-to-day -day, uh, life is during a crisis mm -hmm. uh, from the government perspective. And, I mean, I think... Everyone made it very clear very quickly that this was all new. Nobody knew what was going on. Everyone was in different roles. And so um, Adam and I were both there. We were just kind of like helping out wherever we could. But it was fascinating just to be able to see what was going on from that perspective, from the political perspective. And, you know, we would like write up briefs and then the next day it would be completely irrelevant because some new information would come out and mm -hmm. things were just changing so quickly mm -hmm. and everyone kept asking questions like, oh, like, 
do you have the answers to these questions and this? And we're like, no, <laughs> like nobody knows. And that's the reality. Like we really don't know what's going on. And this is all just something that we have to work together to do. Um, but it was also crazy being there when there were still some people, you know, not thinking, not taking COVID seriously and still you would see people on Instagram partying in Miami and stuff and on spring break. And we were like seeing the death numbers every single day. Um, and so that was like a huge, huge kind of reality check. And, um, and you know, people, it was such a strange time because half, you know, half my friends were, or not half, but some of my friends were from privileged backgrounds and some of my friends like weren't. And so people are suddenly going home to these really different worlds. Whereas at college, we all lived, we all lived on campus housing. And so that was kind of like an equalizer there. But suddenly we were all going to these really, really different worlds and dealing with different things. And some people were just, you know, sad about leaving school, which was very sad. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. That was very sad. But other people were like, oh, like, I can't go to class because I need to take care of my family and, you know, siblings who are sick with COVID slash are essential workers. And, you know, just very, um, very different lifestyles all came up to light. And so it was a very uh, poignant time to be a college student in my mind, especially senior and also people were just going in different directions after that. Um, but, yeah, yeah, definitely being at the, on the, in the task force was very illuminating. Yeah, no, I would I would say that I mean Caroline just became such a um, knowledgeable person about what was going on in the pandemic, and I also was starting to work for a, a company that was you know involved in testing and stuff like that, and she was so helpful all the time. Um, but it also struck, and you know, she mentioned you 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 realize you know how people come from different backgrounds, but it also made us realize you know people are dying, and so that's we had the luxury of coming and spending a lot of time here partly because of um, Nick's mom, uh, Jane Kristoff, you know, who basically this is her farm. Um, and, you know, we're lucky. I mean, Nick's not traveling so much. He's not off in Yemen. And so he's here with his mom. And so are we. And I think that's been extremely, you know, it's brought families together in many ways. And I think that that's great. And we're, we have the luxury of, you know, you're outside on a farm. You're not cooped up. So it's the best place to be in a pandemic where you don't feel, oh my God, I'm going crazy because I have these four walls and that's it. We have, you know, we had all of this, which was great. And so um, we're very grateful for that, you know, and, you know, for Jane allowing us to come here and not, (laughs) you know, know, I know that there were families that, you know, it just creates a lot of, a lot of tension because they have small places, but, you know, she's delighted (laughs) to share all this with us. The small spaces. That's why. That's why wine num- sales numbers went up so high last year. Is all those families being stuck together all that time. <laughs> uh, for Nick, Nick and Trey, you, you mentioned uh, kind of the, the diff- how much your your lives have changed without the travel. I'm curious as you look ahead, what do you see? Do you see getting back to a schedule like that? Do you see your job changing in the future? I I just don't know. Um, uh, you know, I uh, I certainly have been struck by the importance of covering domestic uh, issues and domestic inequities uh, as well as international ones. At least for now, it also seems that President Biden is uh, trying to do something kind of Rooseveltian and history-making and trying to 
create a national daycare, a child allowance to slash child poverty, uh, infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. And so in that sense, it may also be that one of the most important uh, places where things are changing around the world is right here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. But also here in Yam Hill, I mean, so for instance, we've been struck because we've been here, internet is really important. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of people in rural areas, they don't have great internet. I mean, they have spotty internet, mm-hmm. in- including we have spotty internet too. So we are really understanding what that means. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, if you do want to make people productive, then you need to give them the tools in the same way that you know, um, Roosevelt electrified, you know, uh, you know, the U.S., you know, a century ago, practically. Um, we need to broadband uh, the country as well because you can make people much more productive. Uh, and, you know, even with schools, partly because a lot of the rural areas, they don't have good access to the Internet. How have these kids been going to school mm-hmm. when they're remote? And particularly in Oregon, because they've been remote for so much and, you know, they really haven't gone, you know, like, you know, most haven't gone back to school in person in a full way. I mean, New York, New York has a little bit, but obviously, you know, uh, a lot of people are still remote, but that hurts the students who don't have really good access or who are fighting over, you know, the access to the internet with all their other family members. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, 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 it just, I hope it doesn't take as much of a toll that, as I fear on the children, on students, um, K through 12, um, you know, and obviously, you know, college students as well, but K through 12, they're just such vulnerable years. And especially in the early grades, it's so important for those kids to get a handle on school mm-hmm. and to like it. Um, I really hope that we can pull through that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So Caroline, you, you touched a little bit earlier on, on kind of your vision for the future of, of this place. Um, for, the, for the three of you, uh, what, what, what's kind of your hope with, with the cider, with the wine? What, what's what's what, what's what's the success for for Christoph Farms? Well, <laughs> I think that I I'll, I could start. Um, I think that you know we're never aiming to be this like mass market brand like Angry Orchard or something like that um, that everybody's heard of. But I hope that we can establish ourselves as um, you know legitimate in this area and have a product that people like and tastes good. And, um, you know, aren't just drinking because they know who, like, <laughs> my parents are. Um, but so that that's a big goal. And I think that, um, you know, hopefully in the beginning we're working with amazing cider makers and winemakers to really um, get that through. But also hopefully just legitimize ourselves in the industry and just learn as much as we can and prove that we love doing this and... Um, I mean, the farm means so much to us, and it's hopefully going to be in our family. Well, hopefully it's never not going to be in our family. And so, you know, we want to be able to create something on this farm that we love and that we can share with other people. And so it's it's really exciting that we are, you know, starting to already share this beautiful farm and property um, with others. So as long as we continue to do that in a meaningful way um, and keep that of our values, I think that that's what success will be to us. Do you have something to add to that, Nick? It seems like you had a had an answer as well. Um, you know, just that we also do 
hope that uh, this can help the Yamhill area to some degree. One of the things that has struck me over the years is the impact of the wine industry in the region. So when I was growing up, Carlton was the poor town next door and Yamhill was better off. And then uh, Carlton really embraced the wine industry and Ken Wright uh, in particular did an awful lot to help Carlton. Well, Yamhill remains suspicious of the industry, and I think there's also been some fault line because local people see Californians moving in into the wine industry, and that has created a certain uh, tension. Um, as a local kid, I you know, may be able to help bridge some of that, and I'd love to see Yamhill uh, embrace the industry as Carlton has. I think that would be good for job creation, for the local community, uh, for the schools, and um, you know, if we can play some small part of that, uh, that'd be great. You mentioned an interesting point earlier that none of you really come from a wine background. I'm curious, your, your perceptions of Oregon wine industry uh, growing up here and seeing it around you, what, what were kind of your perspectives on it as you, as you watched it grow? Well, initially when people started planting vines, we thought, oh, those crazy people thinking they're going to make wine in Oregon. Never going to happen. And, you know, that they'll produce some vinegar. And uh, uh, and so, uh, and, you know, they obviously had the last laugh. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it, but just as in the national economy, there has been enormous economic growth overall in GDP at the same time that a lot of folks have been left behind. In some ways, in Yamhill County, you've had something parallel. You've had this extraordinary wine industry emerge uh, at the same time that the timber industry was faltering, that agriculture was faltering, that manufacturing was collapsing in this area. But just as your average miner in West Virginia did not benefit from the profits of investment bankers in Manhattan, so I think too often, people who lost jobs in manufacturing in Yamhill County or in uh, agriculture and timber have not adequately benefited mm -hmm. from the growth of the wine industry. And that's nobody's fault, but I think we all need to figure out how to make sure that the benefits and prosperity is more broadly shared. For, for any of you, uh, now that you're a part of the wine industry, uh, whether you like it or not, uh, what do you see as you look ahead for Oregon wine? What, what do you hope the industry looks like uh, down the road? What, are, what, are, what, is, what is your role in it? And, and what do you maybe fear about the future of the wine industry? Well, I hope that it really can um, lift up many Oregonians with it. Uh, and, um, you know, I think that's really important, as Nick said, to you know, have the prosperity be more broad-based and shared um, among many different people because the wine industry can, can encompass quite a different, uh, along the whole supply chain and, and the, the, um, the whole chain of, 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 of later on can really help um, a lot of Oregonians. Um, I hope that other states don't do as well as Oregon, <laughs> although I still also wish, you know, all Americans to do better. Um, but I hope that they can do better, but just a little bit behind Oregon, right? <laughs> um, yeah. But that's really the, I mean, I, I just, you know, 
maybe we can export uh, more to uh, Asia, um, which doesn't have a lot of great brand names in, in wine. And so hopefully, you know, Oregon wine can become really premier in, in Asia, in all parts of Asia. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, represents, I mean, you know, for us to look more towards Asia, for Oregon to look more towards Asia as its trading partner. Mm -hmm. uh, or, I mean, obviously it does, does trade as, right now, but to expand that uh, potential relationship, I think that's, you know, that could really, you know, pose a bright future for Oregon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that one thing that I really hope to see is that it becomes more accessible and diversifies a lot. I think that, um, you know, right now it's hard to enter um, and also is not so much of a diverse population that um, is is in the wine industry. And the same is true of the cider industry. And so obviously the all the amazing wine studies programs at local colleges I think are you know doing doing wonders for this and hopefully that'll just continue and they'll continue to get bigger um but I do hope that in the next in in the coming years slash decades um we see it diversify a lot and become a lot more accessible I would uh emphasize Cheryl's point about the opportunities for Oregon wine in Asia. Mm -hmm. We are on the Pacific Rim, and if you can get 1.4 billion people in China drinking <laughs> Oregon Pinot, boy, that has an impact on the One glass here. of wine a year, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I also think that at the end of the day, while there are many factors that are promising for the Oregon wine industry, you know, including climate, I think, will for the next few decades benefit Oregon, maybe at the expense of California. But at the end of the day, you can't divorce the prospects of the Oregon wine industry from the prospects for Oregon. Mm -hmm. And Oregon, in many ways, has an awful lot going for it. One of the challenges is the education system here. We, as a state, have been faltering on education. And in the pandemic, we faltered even more by having so many people uh, study remotely. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you know, when fourth grade uh, math scores in Oregon are ninth from the bottom nationally, that is not encouraging about where Oregon will stand in 25 years. And so I hope the wine industry will also, and I think it has. I mean, you've got things like the Amhill Enrichment Society, Susan Huckablosser, you have other efforts, but I think it's important as a matter of values and self-interest for the wine industry to really emphasize that issue of making sure that Oregon school year is longer, that graduate high school graduation rates go up, uh, that uh, math and reading scores go up for this state. With all the questions that I have for the three of you today, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Is there anything we didn't talk about here today that we should have talked about? I think you got it all. I mean, <laughs> good. well, thank yeah. you, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time, your hospitality in this lovely sheep shed, <laughs> and uh, and all your great answers. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank great. you. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. 
The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.